Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When you think about how the pandemic will reshape who is employed and why, your mind probably doesn't go first to chicken sandwiches. But I'm going to make the argument that maybe it should. It was really challenging for for us being a double drive through brand. Um, we got busy quite fast because we didn't have that, you know, dining room or any of that kind of threat. Early in the pandemic, Shanna Gonzalez, who owns four Checkers franchises in Georgia, had a major problem. And here's the question. If you had the same problem, how would you deal with it? The problem, of course, was that things were too busy. And I'm talking, they turned a light on and, and it was you know, 30% up in sales overnight. So, you know, we quickly tried to figure out staffing and obviously during the pandemic, you know, we started losing people because of the scare of what was happening, what was going on. Um, So it just became harder and harder to staff. Okay, so you've got a few restaurants with burgers and chicken sandwiches and hot dogs and milkshakes. You are pummeled with customers whisking by the drive-thru window but it's a hard time to be recruiting new people to come to work in person at a restaurant. What do you do? What Shanna did was turn to a company that uses automated voice recognition to help take orders. Welcome to the Checkers self-checkout. I'm your automated order taker. Tell me what you would like. Uh, Yes, ma'am, I need a number three. Would you like your Baconzilla combo to be medium or large? Uh, Medium with no ketchup. What do you want to drink? Diet Coke. I added one medium baconzilla combo with no ketchup with medium Diet Coke. Anything else? That's Holly, the robot who sometimes takes your order. And she will be doing more as Shanna Gonzalez and the company she got Holly from, a startup called Valiant, trains her. Because in different areas, we have different accents and we have different styles of ordering, things like that. Um, and that was, at the beginning, probably some of the biggest challenges that Holly had is kind of just differentiating some of the slang um, for ordering and, and just not knowing that part as well as a human employee would. But don't worry, she's getting better. And Holly is just one sign that the labor market is changing in all sorts of ways that are going to affect both this generation and the next many of which were accelerated, and sometimes shockingly so, by the pandemic. We're going to talk about all that this hour. But David Otter, a professor of economics at MIT and one of the world's leading experts on employment and automation, says, if you're worried that Holly is a sign of solid jobs disappearing one by one, mm, don't be. There is not a future in order-taking. That's even if we would have those jobs in perpetuity, they would never be high-paid jobs. Uh, They would never offer, you know, security, wage progression, a lifetime of uh, improving opportunity. And so um, it's it's inevitable and generally positive that we're going to take low productivity jobs that have no future and have them done by machines. At the hamburger chain White Castle, Otter notes, robots are now sometimes used to cook up French fries, which doesn't exactly make him nostalgic for the old days. Good riddance to that job. <laughs> and so this is a sign of the times, is a sign of tight labor markets. And that means it's also going to be a sign of rising wages and employers working harder to make jobs attractive for workers. Uh, and there are many good things that come from that. Years ago, I talked to a fascinating pioneer in robotics who told me that people often pine for jobs that are now automated. But, he said, when those jobs were not automated, many of them made people sick or they broke down people's bodies by the time they were 40, 
or they were physically very dangerous. Still, there's a definite and not unreasonable fear that automation's going to steal jobs people need and depend on. David Otter, the economist from MIT, argues the gig taking orders at Checkers or frying the fries at White Castle, they're a bit different. This is automation that's being actually forced by labor scarcity. And that's quite different from automation that arrives because we have a breakthrough and it just makes workers cheap relative to the machines. Automation that is pushed by labor scarcity is almost always labor complementary. It makes people more productive on average. Uh, this is not, you know, oh, we, we found a machine that sets type uh, on the uh, newspaper, so goodbye to all our typesetters. It's not that all fears of automation are unreasonable. It really does displace people. And not all jobs that are displaced by automation are bad jobs. Right? Uh, some of them are production jobs. Some of them are uh, office and administrative support jobs. Uh, some of them are decision-making jobs. Uh, so I don't say good riddance to every job that is automated. But when this is driven by labor scarcity at the low end of the labor market, it generally means that employers are pushing hard to find workers to do that work. It means that they're going to compete harder, pay higher wages, offer better, more benefits and training. And the parts of it that can be done automatically or done by a machine will be done. In general, that's because employers are responding to workers demanding better. Hmm. Let me uh, bring into this conversation Betsy Stevenson. She's a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Michigan. Um, she was chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor during the Obama administration. Betsy, we see a ton of this uh, like labor-saving stuff going on. Some of it is robots, but some of it is grills in restaurants that now can grill both sides of a piece of bread. So basically, you have no human that has to come and turn it over. So instead of a big bang, you just see humans sort of quietly being removed from the equation. Um, what do you think when you see what's happening here? Well, I was very excited to hear about Holly. That sounds really nice to me, too. Look, I think if we think about David's optimism and his enthusiasm, good riddance to these bad jobs, that's kind of an end game thought, because at the end of the day, we are better off. I mean, the whole history of improving living standards over centuries has been about technology reducing things that we need to do so that we can do other things, and that has allowed us to produce more. The problem is there can be a transition where some people are hurt. So I think when David was talking about, well, this came out of labor scarcity, to me what that's about is this transition won't be quite as painful because I'm not handing an individual a pink slip. And when an individual gets a pink slip, that's kind of a painful transition. Like they got to figure out what they're going to do. Here, what we have is, well, there's no, instead of hiring people, we're it, deploying AI and somebody got a job out of that. Like the people who invented that right. computer that program. Right, that startup company is a, is a going concern. Right, like they were popping the champagne. Hey, we just got a new client. This is amazing. We sold our product. We worked so hard on it. So they're happy. And the owner of the restaurant's like, I was having a hard time hiring workers. So she's happy because she has a new solution. And the workers who are left in the restaurant, well, now they're more productive because they have this technology that's helping them out. That should make her more likely to pay her existing workers higher wages. So all of that, we get to the good part without actually handing somebody a pink slip. The problem is that 
a lot of the technological change we're going to see, it could happen quickly enough that we see people handed a pink slip. In some ways, the COVID pandemic has helped because it was so disruptive that as pe people are rolling new things out when we really couldn't safely put human beings into these jobs, and that's given us a time to roll out technology and make big changes where everybody's trying to rethink what they want to do. Betsy, it's interesting because I think there's a mismatch, or, or maybe there isn't, you tell me, but I think there's a mismatch in the way people think about this. So you've got, we've just been through a summer of lifeguard shortages and, you know, shortages of, of waiters and waitresses and shortages, you know, hotels being like, I can't get people to work at the front desk, right? like on and on. The, the uh, Many, many shortages where people have said, I'm really concerned I can't get enough people to do X, Y, Z, to be at the beach and watch the swimmers and so on. Um, and and I think there's some there has been some like line of thinking like, great, then this gives people who don't make that much money more bargaining power. But it sounds like under the radar, what's happening is the people who run those things are thinking, hmm, how can we get fewer people to make this sandwich? How does that work? Well, sort of both those things can be are happening at the same time. So let me mm -hmm. say something clearly. Uh, it drives me crazy when people say we can't get any workers. No, you can't get any workers at the wage you want to pay. Right, you know, I right, looked right. at my swim club and they were like, we can't hire lifeguards. And I was like, maybe pay in the double digits instead of the single digits per hour. See what happens there. So the problem is we've gotten really used to cheap, low wage labor. And we got to break that habit. Cheap, low-wage labor is not sustainable for anybody. So we're going to make, we're going to pay people more for their efforts. And we're going to try to make them more productive by rolling out more technology. If we make them more productive, it's easier to justify paying them higher wages. So these two things actually go together hmm. in a way that actually is, I think, positive and reinforcing. David, um, I remember talking to you very early in the pandemic. I think things had just been shut down for a few weeks. And I remember you saying that once employers learn something about uh, being able to do with less, fewer employees, being able to automate things, that's just not something that they can unlearn. So when you think about, okay, in five or 10 years, when we all look back on what the pandemic did to labor, how it kind of reordered the marketplace, what do you think we're going to see? So I, I stand by that statement that once uh, once something's learned, it can't be unlearned. Uh, but I think I think there are a number of changes. So I mean, an important set of changes actually is around both consumption habits and work habits, not just the technology itself. So for example, the fact that we're all doing this call, this conversation from our, our various closets on our various computers. Uh, <laughs> it's true. Closets are great. <laughs> I mean, but this is a lot more convenient since I, I believe we're at least in three different states. And that's a that's not that's not so much a technological change. In fact, you know, many of us were using teleconferencing a few years ago to work with co-authors. It's the, the the miracle is not that I'm using Zoom; it's that you're all using Zoom simultaneously, right? And so that's a coordination problem, and it's changed a norm. It's changed what's acceptable about how we do our work together. We don't all have to be in a studio. So that's actually incredibly that's that that's a productivity improvement, but it also changes the way we'll use offices. Changes how much time we'll spend downtown. It changes where we'll want to live relative to where our offices are located. It changes how much business travel we'll do. You know, I don't intend to cross many more continents for 90-minute meetings unless someone's giving me a big bonus for doing that. Uh, that's a lot of time. <laughs> 
So that's one set of changes, right, about how we work. A second is, of course, how we consume. People are much more accepting of the idea that things will be done online and through machine-person interactions rather than person-person interactions. You know, I I used to find it very uh, anxiety-provoking to try to order food online. I would much rather speak to a person so I could know they got the order right. Now I think it's much better to do it on the computer because I can be sure that all the parameters are dialed in. There's no ambiguity. And when I get the email, it says what I typed, right? That's also Mm. changes norms and expectations and what customers anticipate. You know, a few years ago, it might have been really difficult to roll out Holly. The customer mm-hmm. would have said, you know, why isn't there a person taking my order? This is cumbersome. This is annoying. Right? Now they say, oh, I guess, you know, I've, I've learned to live with this. It's okay. I, you know, I, I, buy, I buy every single object I own on Amazon. I guess I can, you know, speak to Holly when I'm ordering a, a, right. a, a chicken sandwich. And then, of course, there's the technology, technological changes themselves we've been speaking about. That basically, the pandemic pulled technologies from five, ten years in the future into the present. They sped up the rates. Many of these things would have occurred, but they've occurred faster uh, because they became more valuable as labor was scarce. So let me pause there. I'm sure Betsy has much to add. Yeah. What do you think in five or 10 years when we look back at like, what did what the pandemic do to things? What do you think we'll say? So I think the big unknown is how much it has changed how we think about our work and our lives and our consumption, the kind of things David was just talking about. Are these permanent? Are they transitory? Is this really about pulling forward? Look, we all just learned. It's not just the technology got rolled out five to 10 years faster, but we actually learned five to 10 years worth of technology adoption in a one-year period. That's a really, really big deal. So I I actually worked for a tech consulting company when airlines were rolling out self-checking kiosks. Hmm. And so one thing you might not remember is that uh, Alaska Airlines was one of the first airlines to roll it out. And other airlines were considering it, working on it, had plans. And then September 11th happened. So it's 20 years ago. Back in the old days, you could see uh, Alaska self-checking kiosks were at the gate because you didn't need a, a boarding pass to get through security. That was one of their problems. Um, but it was a real question. All the airlines were like, wait a minute. Um, do we keep rolling out this technology or will it be a problem? And the fear, there's always a fear when there's new technologies about whether consumers will use them. Hmm. Um, You know, I remember there were ATMs when I was a kid and my mom still wanted to get out of the car and go in and stand in the queue and have a real person hand her her money because maybe an ATM would make a mistake. So all these kinds of fears of technology, that's a normal pattern of adopting technology. But you know what? COVID was scarier than new technology. So like my parents adopted click and collect like David, they always wanted to talk to a person. Now they order online and they get frustrated if it, you know the online process doesn't work. So I think that's going to stick. The bigger question is, will the, the ways in which the pandemic has shaped how we think about working from home, will that stick? And how will it shape a younger a generation of younger people? How will the closeness of of people with their families you know you've had more young people living with their parents people in their 20s living with their parents than we ever had in the housing crisis mm-hmm. how will that shape their approach to to work and closeness with their families will they want to live near their parents when they eventually have children in their 30s because they developed this close relationship and they'll want that help with childcare? um 
will young, even younger people who saw how their grandparents came in and helped when the childcare center shut down, will that change their relationships? These questions are important for work because that will affect where you want to work. That will also affect your demand from being, you know, wanting to work in a urban area, wanting to go into the office. I tend to think that these are really seismic shifts that will last decades. But I, I do think that we're changing what we want. And right now we see that in the surveys and we see that in the behavior. I agree with David. I thought people would become pouring back into the labor market. They all want their jobs back. They don't all want their jobs back. They're also kind of annoyed at their jobs. They, I've never seen so many people in surveys say they want something different. They don't all want to work less. Let me be clear about that. I, uh, I kind of wanted to work less. And so then I over extrapolated and thought maybe other people <laughs> would feel like me. Um, it's hard not to project. <laughs> but it, it just turns out that that's not right. Some people were like, oh, why was, you know, why? I should have buckled down and really made my career happen when I had a chance and look at how COVID derailed things for me. And so now I'm going to be more laser focused on making things happen. I'm going back to school. I'm getting that degree. That is part of why we don't see people going to take orders right now because they've decided they want to do something more meaningful with their life. So I think we're going to come out of this with people with more skills and better able to manage the the technological change. And I also think we have a little bit, maybe not a lot, but a little bit more empathy from policymakers in terms of what's the best way to support people when they have no income. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with Betsy Stevenson from the University of Michigan, David Otter from MIT. We're looking at how the pandemic is gonna change the kinds of jobs that exist, how the economy treats us, and coming up, we'll have more of those seismic shifts that Betsy was talking about, including what happens to the divide between the haves and the have-nots coming out of COVID. You can always let me know your thoughts on the show or what your experience of the economy has been. I'm on Twitter at Kara, K-A-R-A, at Kara E. Miller. From GBH and PRX, this is Innovation Hub. Back in just a minute. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We're looking at how the pandemic has changed the economy, what jobs have disappeared, which ones are on the rise, and with a bunch of government stimulus, have some of the gaps between the rich and the poor begun to close? I am joined again by Betsy Stevenson. She was the chief economist at the Labor Department in the Obama administration. She's now at the University of Michigan. And David Otter is the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT. Uh, David what has been striking to me so far in this discussion is that you don't seem to see these huge changes in the economy leading to um, large pools of unemployed people who are, let's say, pushed out by automation. In fact, uh, there may have been some increase in wages. So are we seeing, maybe counterintuitively, a generally positive turn, a generally positive direction uh, for the economy going forward? I, I think so. The scarcity that we're seeing is, I view as a positive. 
Uh, it's you know again if we were if you were saying look there's all this automation occurring and people can't get their old jobs back I would have a very different perspective on that mm-hmm. and I don't mm-hmm. I don't want to be clear that not all automation is good and there are many things to be concerned about and there have been very you know troubling or challenging episodes in the past but this particular episode is relatively positive and let me say that um, you know we are heading into uh, an era of sustained labor scarcity because of demographics the combination of you know smaller cohorts much lower fertility and then vastly restricted immigration which could change but doesn't appear to be changing uh, means that you know the uh, where there'll be fewer young people to do physically demanding jobs there'll be fewer workers per retiree uh, which is costly uh, and we're going to need automation uh, to pull that off and in fact the countries that are furthest ahead in automation are the countries that have the oldest populations so Japan Italy uh, Korea Germany uh, those countries are aging fast. And now, I mean, we're all aging about the same rate individually, but country, some age, countries age faster than others depending on how many uh, new young people they bring in. Right. So I think that this period of labor scarcity is likely to be sustained. I mean, there'll be fluctuations. Obviously, there'll be booms and busts. Um, so I think we're transitioning now earlier than expected to a, uh, a different normal and in some ways a better one. Okay. Can I actually add in one point just on uh, yes. what Betsy was mentioning about, you know, our norms about working from home? It's easy to forget that this is not the first work-from-home era uh, and that, in fact, the anomaly is the working from the office. Mm-hmm. And prior to the Industrial Revolution, most people work from home. Either they were in agriculture, but even a lot of the you know artisanal work was, was work from home. You would get materials from the employer of the factory. You would bring them home. You would make boots. You would make you know, clothing, you would sew things, you would build things, and then you would bring them back. And that was part of it. Sometimes it was called the putting out system. And we transitioned to working in buildings together side by side when the technology changed and required and made that much more productive, right? You can't have an assembly line where everyone's working from home. (laughs) They all need to be in the same building. Um, But that was actually considered really unnatural to pull people away from their families 40, 50, 60, 80 hours a week. And so in some sense, it's much, you know, the the notion that we all have a place where we live and then a different place that waits for us when we're not there, where we do our work and we transition between two spaces and with a completely different set of people is not the norm through most of human history. And I think many of us discovered there are a lot of virtues to seeing your family more often than just at dinner time. Um, So people may have changed their expectations. And Mm -hmm. uh, increasingly, the survey evidence says people are bargaining with employers about how many days are they allowed to work from home? Mm-hmm. You know, the staff at MIT where I work have all, you know, have, have negotiated with the university to, to, to have at least one and typically two days a week working from home, if feasible, if they do the type of work that can be delivered that way. Um, Betsy, one of the subgroups in the, in the labor market that you and I have talked about over the last year is women. There's, uh, there was obviously a huge disruption. A, a lot of this is simply... People did not have places to put their children over the last year. I mean, that it is as simple as that. You cannot go to work and leave the six-year-old at home. That's not a thing. Um, what's your sense of uh, where things stand now with women in the labor market? And are there lasting ripples out from that that even a few years on we may see? So... I, I'm going to like follow right up on what David was saying about how unnatural it is to work, leave your house at, you know, 730 in the morning and come home at six o'clock at night, having dropped your kid off at daycare in between and doing that five days a week. 
-hmm. It's also very cumbersome in terms of the amount of time it takes, right? So one of the reasons why researchers have found work from home can actually increase productivity is just because if you have an extra hour a day from not commuting or two or two, you yeah. can use that time to do things for your family and for your employer. And it turns out most people split that time in some way where they give some share of it to their employer in terms of time for work. So I think that we've really learned that workplace flexibility makes balancing work and family much easier. And the problem was women sort of knew that, but they were asked to pay a big penalty for getting that flexibility. That was like, oh, you're that kind of worker, the kind of worker who prioritizes family? Hmm, well, we're going to have to highly discount your wage for being that type of person. And, you know, what I think we've learned is both men and women with children are that kind of worker. And they're actually quite valuable in the workplace. And there's always been security in numbers, right? It's a coordination problem. If every parent, if every man and woman had stood up and said, I have kids at home and I need to be home at least, you know, two days a week so that I can pick them up if they're sick or stay home with them if they're sick so that I don't have to spend so much on childcare so that I can be home when someone comes to repair the washing machine or whatever it mm -hmm. is you need done. Yeah. If we had all insisted on that, then employers would be like, oh, okay, everybody needs that. You're not, you're not a less dedicated worker type. You're just a person type. So there's that safety in numbers. And my hope is coming out of this pandemic, People are going to say, hey, we all liked that. We all need that. It made our lives better. It made working better. And that's going to make it a lot easier for women. I mean, I think if you talk to a lot of women who had babies during the pandemic, it was a godsend. Like you didn't have to go back to work, right? Yes, you didn't, you know, you had a childcare issue, but people don't really like putting their six week old in childcare yeah. settings. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you have, if you were lucky enough to have a baby that sleeps a lot, you know, you, they're right there that you can nurse, you can, you can get back to work somewhat, you can share the responsibilities with your spouse. And you didn't face that gut wrenching thing that a lot of parents face at really young ages of dropping your kid off for, you know, 10 hours a day. I think that kind of flexibility, I hope a lot of employers rethink what maternity and paternity leave is all about. I would love to see maternity leave and paternity leave be a period of time where you have no work and then a period of time where you work remotely at say 80% or 60% hours and you ramp back up until you're at 100% work and back in the office, you know, two days a week. Um, that would be a much more humane way to introduce a child into the house while continuing with your job. But the reality is that women are too important a part of the labor force. They're not going to step out. It's not like... If this had happened in the 1990s, we might have really set women back permanently. Okay. But we've had more than two decades of women having more education than men, of rising through the ranks, equalizing their workplace experience with men. And at the time of the pandemic, women had held more jobs than men for three months running. But there's no way we lose women. It just uh, There's too much demand for the services they provide. And I think that that's going to put pressure on employers to bend in a way that will make it easier for people to work with family. 
You're talking to somebody who had a baby right before the pandemic wow. shut everything down. So I totally 100% hear you. And then we started covering the pandemic, fortunately, from my closet. So it worked out well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, David, we have clearly seen, I mean, there's been a huge run up in house prices. There's been a huge run up in the stock market. It's hard to get a car. Like, there's clearly people with money to spend. So we, we've talked a little bit about the effect of automation on people maybe earning lower wage jobs and what will what will that effect be. Who are the winners here? And, and do those uh, – does that winning, that money, does that have staying power? Yeah. So, I mean, the remarkable thing is actually through a combination of, uh, you know, government policies – uh, a lot of people actually became more affluent during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, U.S. poverty rates fell historically rapidly <laughs> during the pandemic, amazingly. And that, that's a complete result of successful policy. And, you know, and in fact, household savings are at an all-time high. And part of the reason people may not be working as much is because they have a lot of money in the bank and they're uh, spending it down. But, I mean, that's sort of – that's on average. There were big winners at the top, right? Obviously, uh, the titans of tech companies, the Amazons and the uh, right. uh, you know, Uber Eats and so on. Um, the stock market, uh, you know, it, was a, it turned out to be a very short recession. It was a surprise how quickly it ended. I mean, the, the effects are lingering. But uh, if we think about, you know, long term, who are the winners from the changes? In addition to the people who, you know, own the right stuff, it will be – People who can structure their lives uh, more successfully by potentially, you know, the way they work, uh, where they live. And that remains to be seen how that works out. And, you know, I share some of Betsy's optimism about the way the labor market may change for women. But I think there's there are reasons to to also be. Uh, somewhat skeptical. There's a, a, a you know, wonderful forthcoming book by the Harvard scholar Claudia Golden, who Betsy and I both know well, uh, called Career and Family, uh, that talks about the, the long-term evolution of, of uh, women's work and, and uh, how labor market norms have changed and how jobs have changed and education has changed. And it's absolutely the case that women are more educated than men at this point. They should be, in some sense, doing better. But by you know, standard metrics, they're not. They have lower wage jobs. Uh, they don't move, rise as high in the ladder. They have less responsibility. And you know, in uh, Claudia Golden's telling, it's not so much because of residual discrimination, but because jobs have become incredibly greedy, and it's almost impossible to have a two-career family where two people are fully pursuing those high-end power uh, career track jobs um, if you have children. And so the labor market is is so greedy. If you really want a you know a job with uh, high pay and huge responsibility, it's not enough to work forty hours. You need to work sixty. You need to work eighty. If you're not willing to come in on Saturday, then don't come in on Sunday either, because we expect you here seven days a week. Uh, <laughs> okay. And so this has been a challenge. And so it remains to be seen whether we'll be able to restructure work such that people can actually make a different set of trade offs and balances, or whether it will continue to be the case that if you for the most compelling careers that are, you know, the creative and remunerative and interesting and uh, responsible and prestigious, whether people have to really give up so much of everything else. And if so, that will be an impediment for families, not necessarily for women, but for families. Someone in the family will have to uh, sacrifice a lot so the other can do that job. It'll require a more division of labor in that way. Betsy, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But I, I have to say, I have seen, you know, charts that show 
it's the people at the top that ha- have worked more in the last few decades. That's correct. Whereas people like bottom income earners generally often have worked less, not because they want to work less, but often because their employer won't give them the hours they are after. That's right. So historically, up until the 70s, people in you know low and medium paid jobs, people in high paid jobs, that the hours they work were relatively uncorrelated with their wages. People tended to work 35, 40 mm-hmm. hours, maybe 45, 50. So very high paid people worked a little more. Now it's incredibly steep. People who have high levels of education and high hourly earnings work very long hours, more than they often would claim they want to. People with uh, low education and low pay work relatively few hours, often fewer than they want to. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, so what we, we would call the, those sort of high pay, high hour jobs, they have what we call, you know, what economists might call indivisibilities. You can't do, you can't be half of a of a, an investment banker. You can't be half of, of an attorney, half of uh, academic. You, you're all in or you're not in. Uh, you can't, it's not divisible. Well, Betsy, wait, take I want to, I want to jump in because I, you use the word can't and can't is a, is a very particular word. So right now, for reasons that I think Claudia Golden herself is like, it's not easy to explain why there's not room for you to be half a partnered lawyer or half an academic. And it really seems like, you know, if you think about it, you go back a hundred years and there was a thing called the leisure class. The leisure class was not low income people. The leisure class was high income people. And there were social norms such that you know, it was embarrassing to have to work really long hours that you needed to be able to to lounge about. That was you wanted to become part of the leisure class. Now, the the leisure class is actually the lower income households, some of which they're it's not leisure. It's that they do more home production. So we don't count it as work, but they are working. They're just providing their own child care. They're making their own meals. They're chopping their own vegetables instead of buying pre-chopped vegetables. They're vacuuming themselves rather than buying the expensive Roomba, right? So they're, they're doing more in household production, perhaps, but they're definitely, and they'd like to work more, but can't get the hours. And then we have these high income households where people are working really long hours in these greedy jobs, it's not just the number of hours, but it's actually on demand all the time. The problem with a greedy job is greedy jobs are like toddlers. And so a household can't have two greedy jobs and a toddler, right? You've got to have, like, it's got to be, you know, one one body per toddler. And that means that if there's a human toddler, there can only be one job toddler, and like once it comes down to allocating that way, it usually falls to the woman to take the human toddler and the man to take the toddler job. The question is why we need jobs that act like toddlers. And I don't think there's anything in economics that really says that it has to be this way. Like there's some arguments of economies of scale, but honestly, I think a lot of these People don't become more productive in their 70th hour. Um, and we've seen, you know, Claudia Golden has pointed to occupations where there has been a change forced. If you think about obstetrics, right, Carrie, you just had a baby. Yeah. When my mom had a baby, my mom likes to tell me her birth story and it's all complaining. <laughs> that sounds fine. 
<laughs> it's all complaining about how her doctor had some dinner party he had to go to, and so he should have done more to bring on her labor faster, but he wanted to be at his dinner party. And no, there's no partner to step in for him. Whereas when I had my child, I was in labor for 72 hours, and I must have gone through a dozen doctors and in fact the doctor who ended up delivering me was like i've been off for two days you're still here <laughs> so like they they no longer expect one doctor to be following you through your entire labor they don't even right, expect right, one doctor right. to follow you through your entire pregnancy right they used to claim that the only way to give you good medical care was if it was one doctor giving you that continuity of care we now actually think that you know doctors that are a little bit better rested and can read your chart can deliver baby you know just as healthy of a baby so mm -hmm. what caused that change i don't think it was a technological change in childbirthing it was really pressure from the people going into that field in terms of the working conditions they wanted working final quick break here. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with economists Betsy Stevenson and David Otter. And on the other side, I'll look at some of the jobs that are becoming better paid and some that are making folks maybe a little bit too rich, if that's, if that's possible. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. When millions of people were thrown out of work early in the pandemic, it was hard to tell how this would ultimately affect the economy. Hunger shot up, it still remains high. Lots of restaurants and shops shut down temporarily, then some permanently. Many low-wage workers saw their jobs evaporate. But on the other hand, plenty of companies avoided layoffs. Some people, let's assume you sold Pelotons or stuff on Amazon or subscriptions to streaming services, some got outrageously rich. But many, many Americans exist somewhere in the middle. They don't work in fast food, but they also don't bring in $250,000 a year. I've been talking to Betsy Stevenson. She was the chief economist at the Labor Department and David Otter, an economist at MIT, about what lies ahead. And David... Um, We've talked about the increasing automation of fast food type jobs and literally bringing in robots into fast food restaurants. Give me a clearer sense of what happens to the jobs in the middle. Like, are they about to be automated? Are they safe? Uh, certainly before the pandemic, for years, people would talk about the middle being hollowed out. Is that happening? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think it, it's hard to read in the midst of the kind of transition we're in. But I, yeah, I think there's a lot of evidence continuing that, there, that automation continues to erode a lot of those conventional middle skill jobs, the you know, administrative support, production, clerical, accounting. And those jobs have, you know, to the degree they exist, they're really, really quite different from they used to be. And, you know, you do not have a phone person who answers the phone and, you know, types and copies and files, right? People who do administrative right. work now are problem solvers by and large. 
And I think there's reason to think that automation will push more into that. And the AI, we still don't know, but, you know, the, it's, it's a little bit shape-shifting. It's hard to predict. You know, we knew a roadmap of how computing advanced in the pre-AI era. We knew problems you had to, you know, systematize them, write down all the rules, code them up, test, deploy. AI is really quite different from that in that it, it's sort of trainable as opposed to having to be, you know, uh, instructed step by step. So uh, it can change fast. I think there's, I think we'll see more automation in a lot of decision making jobs as well. So, you know, that middle, what was the middle may be expanding, right? Maybe mm, moving okay. up. Um, you, so, yeah, uh, but I, I, was I was actually, so I was going to jump in and say, I mean, when you listen to David, what you were saying is you hear immediately that some of the, the jobs in the middle went up. So it's not like they all were just eliminated, right? Mm -hmm. It's now office assistants actually are more productive because they have all sorts of technology they work with. And that's made some of them like much more highly compensated. It's just a better job. There are fewer of them, but right. it's, a, it's a more skilled, more interesting job and more stressful. You know, but the thing we haven't talked about that I think about a lot is just who owns the technology. Yeah. So, you know, you worry a lot about, you know, jobs of people who drive for a living, right? Like a lot of lower skilled men drive. They drive trucks. They drive Uber. They drive taxis. They drive buses. They drive things. And technology is going to come along that is going to automate that as these drivers can rely more on technology they can be more productive but then we need fewer of them but then there also becomes the issue of are they all driving somebody else's truck and who is it capital or labor who's going to benefit from that i mean you know you posed a question there and i i wonder if um i can ask both of you um what are the questions that you think are the most important? Like, what what do you think about um, at night when you're kind of, you know, thinking about how things are changing, what the pandemic has done, how it's changed things? Are there questions that maybe we're not hearing enough about in the media? They're just not being covered. I think one concern is the way, and this has been ongoing, but the way it's kind of concentrated product market power and corporate power and sort of, you know, the incredible market share and valuation of, you know, Google and Amazon and and uh, all the tech titans. And, you know, we, we generally have a long-term issue in the U.S. with declining rates of competition in many sectors. And, you know, we pay high prices as a result of that for many things. We pay very high prices for, you know, mobile phone service, uh, air travel, uh, cable TV. We have insufficient competition in these areas. And, uh, and that lack of competition doesn't only affect the price of products, but also the affects the way that labor markets work. If there's only one employer that can use your skill, it's hard for you to, you know, strike a fair bargain. And the pandemic clearly has kind of benefited a bunch of superstar firms. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And so it could, it could actually make the, it could exacerbate this problem. Let, let me just follow up on that real quickly. One of my favorite uh, quote probably ever on this program was I was talking to somebody who had written a book about Walmart and Sam Walton and the, and the rise of the company. And, you know, he, he was talking about how people used to complain, oh, it's ruining small towns in the Midwest and, you know, different things. And, and you know, he said, you know, Walmart did not come in to towns with a tractor beam and make people shop at them. He, he said, if you are wondering why Walmart sells certain quality of things in certain places and, and it has certain effects on small towns, 
I think he said, we did that. If you're wondering who did that, we did that. Um, and I think about that a lot with Amazon. Like, if you're wondering who made Amazon what it is, that's us. Like, we did sure. that. And so I don't know what you think about that. I mean, it's it's not like somebody gunned to our head said, you have to order from Amazon. We, we chose it. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I don't fault Amazon for, you know, being an innovative company and an and a, a aggressive, effective competitor. It's more once you reach the point where, you know, you've kind of cleaned out the ecosystem of competitors, what happens then? Yeah, right? yeah, got it. So, uh, you know, clearly Walmart came in and they offered lower prices and a lot of convenience and people thought that was great. But after a while, they don't have competitors, Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, how they behave in that setting may be a little bit different. And there, there's a long history of companies starting out incredibly as incredibly innovative and growing on the merits. And then once they reach the top, they then buy up or crowd out their competitors. Right. You know, Facebook, which obviously offered a thing that a lot of people value, right. also started buying mm-hmm. out, uh, you know, WhatsApp and so on. And so when they saw competitors arising, they found another way to compete with them, which was to purchase them. And, uh, and and eliminate that threat. So I think that's I don't fault companies for growing successfully, but I think the you know once we reach a certain point, there are uh, challenges that creep in, and we may be at that point in many in many uh, sectors. Well, I fault I fault regulators for not having a greater control over stopping companies from doing that. We don't actually want a company to acquire all of its competitors to squash them. That's not a healthy society. And I think, you know, part of the problem in the United States is we've gotten really confused about what it means to be pro-market and pro-business. And pro-market means maintaining healthy competition in the marketplace. Pro-business means helping businesses squash potential competitors so they can maintain large profit margins. And I think too often we pursue policies that are pro-business instead of pursuing ones that are pro-market. I do. Uh, David's more generous to Amazon than I am. Look, I'm a. You are right. I spend a lot of money at Amazon, and I should hold myself accountable <laughs> for that. But Amazon has had some pretty clever policies. Like they have basically kept prices pretty pretty competitive for consumers because they know that regulators take a look at that. But they've okay. done things that are really anti-competitive when it comes to the small businesses trying to use their platform to reach customers. So who are they squeezing? They're squeezing that small business that's trying to sell their product through the Amazon platform. And because they are essentially a monopolist, they can they can do that. That ends up hurting the customers. Like I would like more innovative small businesses to be able to reach me through an online marketplace. And Amazon's done a really good job of trying to make themselves the only online marketplace, but making it so that they suck up any profits that small businesses generate, which then creates a disincentive for small companies to start out. They don't see that as being an easy way to reach customers. So I do think we actually have to tackle the problem. We have to make sure that the economy stays competitive and we need to make sure that workers have competitive a competitive market in which to try to sell their labor. And, th- and this isn't just a kind of hypothetical possibility. We've seen over the last 20 years, particularly in the United States, a decline in the share of national income being paid to workers and a rise being paid to, you know, to capital and profits. And so bringing us back to earlier in the conversation, so I'm somewhat optimistic that the period of labor scarcity that we're, scarcity that we're in and hopefully will remain because of demographics will boost 
bargaining power for labor. You know, David, my favorite quote of all time is one that you made in a newspaper maybe almost a decade ago at this point, where you said, if the robots take all our jobs, we don't have an income problem, we have a distribution problem. And I I just, I love that quote so much because it's exactly right. Look, I would, if I could get up and go to the beach and have a robot do exactly what I would do, do my job for me, that would when be Holly okay. gets, when Holly gets better, Betsy, that's she's gonna do this show. Like if a Holly was actually doing my job and then I got paid for my job, but Holly did the work, that's not a bad life. The problem isn't that Holly is doing my work. It's that Holly is, I'm not getting paid for the work that Holly's doing. And that is what the technological change is all about. It's about how it changes who gets what. It's not about like, you know, our work being taken. I think there's a lot of people who speculate like, what would we do with our lives? You know, will we have any meaning if we're not doing work? I think a lot of people, you know, you can look at YouTube and TikTok while people were stuck at home with no work. People are creative. They have interesting things they can do with their time. Some people do become directionless and maybe we can think about what are kind of national projects we want to do and what kind of community building we want to do. I think we need to separate the problem of work from the problem of meaning and we need to separate you know we need to separate out what will we do that's meaningful from how will we distribute income. I mean I I started working at 14 and I suspect that I'll still be working at 74. So we have changed how how long we live, how much we work, and when we work. People work way less today when they're very young than they used to, mm-hmm. and they work way less when they're very old than they used to. And we think those are positive developments. I, I, I envision a future and hope for a future for my children where they work less when they have kids, because getting to actually spend time with your kids is a joy and a blessing that I hope every parent could have. It's a good thing. Betsy Stevenson, David Otter, two of my favorite guests. Thanks so much for being here. This is great. Thanks to both of you. This was a delight. Yeah, it was lots of fun. And uh, I appreciate talking with both of you. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. We've got lots more about many of the topics that you've heard today from the impact of government benefits on jobs during the pandemic and what happens when those benefits run out to the rise of so-called greedy jobs. That's all at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub.